Yo, what's going on, guys? Welcome to another edition of Bottom of the Bill. Today, we have Kevin Scott on the podcast. Kevin Scott is an amazing bass player. He came up under the Colonel Bruce camp of people. Uh, I got to see him here in Jacksonville a few years ago at 1904 with a band called Fork, and it was really amazing. And ever since then, I've always wanted to get a chance to talk to him. And today, we got to do that. It's, it was an awesome episode. We talk about his time with Colonel Bruce and just his uh, perspective on music in general. Uh, it was a really insightful conversation. I, I definitely learned a lot and took away some very important uh, things, I think, from from this. I hope the same goes for you guys. Before we go on with the episode, we just want to uh, mention the merch store that's in the description below. We got bottom of the bill merchandise. You can buy t-shirts, hats, all kinds of good stuff. Check it out. Anything you can do to help support would be amazing. And then a bigger thing to support, I would argue, is to subscribe on here on YouTube or follow us on any of the platforms you listen on. And if you're enjoying it and you're getting something out of this, please share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, whatever it might be. We're on all the platforms. If you're getting something out of this and you think other people can get something out of it, too, it'd be amazing. It also gets more eyes in our community here in Jacksonville, in Florida and across the board uh, as we get people on from everywhere. So um, just help give more musicians here uh, a voice, you know. So, um, yeah, anyways, here's Kevin Scott. Enjoy the episode. This is Bottom of the Bill. Kevin, thanks for being with us today, man. We really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Yeah, man. I uh, I saw you... Uh, we briefly met, and I doubt that you remember. I'm sure you don't remember it, but we met at 1904 Music Hall pro- uh, here in Jacksonville probably four or five years ago when you were playing with Fork, I believe. Okay. And uh, yeah, you were super cool and everything. And the band was amazing. And uh, I just I went down a rabbit hole with you guys and uh, just really enjoyed the show. And so it's just cool to get to sit here now all these years later and talk to you, you know? Wow, man, it's it's cool, man. It's, it's you got a cool thing going on. I appreciate that, man. So, uh, what's been going on? How's everything going with you? Man, it's good. Uh, been working a lot. You know, moved back to New York. Oh, you're in New um, York now? Yeah, we. I I moved up here first time. I think 2019. Okay. And then uh, my wife and I moved to New Orleans right before the pandemic. So New Orleans was our uh, our pandemic three year hang, and then we moved back to New York last year. Okay, what's that been like being back up there? Oh, it's been amazing. I, I don't want to be anywhere else for sure. Yeah, man, I w- I was up there back in February, uh, just kind of scoping the scene out and stuff. There's so much just happening all at once uh, on any given day, and this city is so dense but also big at the same time so it's like um and the energy is just amazing i can imagine navigating that uh that scene must be quite a task but also rewarding at the same time if you're finding your niche you know well i i kind of had a uh you know the reason why i moved up here originally was oh that's my dog barking hold on i'm sorry oh it's all good yeah i moved i moved up here from atlanta for the because i was already traveling up here working all the time um 
you know, I was playing with uh, Wayne Krantz about once or twice a week. And then through that, you know, I met people like Henry Hay and I started working with Fork. And then, um, you know, the whole scene, Dime McCaslin, all these, all these great New York musicians. I started, but I was technically still living in Atlanta. And uh, then I met my wife, and she was based out of here, and she's a fabricator and artist. So it just was the writing was on the wall to finally leave Atlanta yeah. and move up. And that was what happened. Have you felt a, a shift in your career at all? Like, uh, have the opportunities kind of opened up more or just kind of making it easier to pursue what you were already pursuing? Yeah, I mean, because, you know, Atlanta, it was like I... And I ran that improv session once a week for like 15 years, you know, and it's an amazing group of people and community. I love dearly to this day. And, um, but eventually it was like, I felt like a, there was a, a ceiling there and, you know, pre pandemic on the road nonstop. So, you know, one of the big reasons sticking around Atlanta was because the, the financial reasons was, you know, I was, I was, probably paying 600 bucks a month to live in Atlanta compared to the outrageous money we're spending to live now in uh, Brooklyn. Right. <laughs> but there's the thing about New York is that uh, in terms of the creative scene, I, I still think it's where it's at. And, you know, it's like last night I played a gig in Marlboro, which is about two hours from here with John Modeski and Billy Martin and Will Bernard. And we just did, you know, improvised set for 90 minutes. Hell yeah. A lot, just a lot more of those opportunities up here than in Atlanta, where uh, I always felt Atlanta, which is one of the reasons why we all did it, was it was like an upstream battle against the city itself. Because you know, a lot of guys came through my session, you know, and they're all we, you know, a lot of people came through there doing really good things, but um, we we didn't have the support from just like people that work nine to fives like it was amazing musicians would come out but um it just it, there's just, just a ceiling there right and here you know we played last night and it was you know 400 people on a thursday to hear us play as weird as we possibly can and be in the moment and, you know just it's that's the only place like it i think yeah totally um yeah i feel like i feel like there's a, a few places where obviously the music industry really thrives and, you know, New York, LA, Nashville, um, <clears throat> and that's like, you know, where the real industry lives. And then you have like these cool scenes like Denver and Austin and stuff that are just like really good, like music communities. But I feel like Atlanta has some of that too, but I think it's just in a different realm, right? Like hip hop thrives there. And, uh, there's definitely like a pop, I think element that exists there. But as far as like the improv and the jam, world i feel like it's probably a bit of an uphill battle i would imagine yeah you know and i did you know there's a time in my life where i was doing a lot of uh, you know I, mean, I was working for uh with akon and and um as far as wale i was doing a lot of hip-hop and r&b stuff monica fergie was, a lot of that stuff was going down the pipe for session work in atlanta wow um but that changed and like you said, it's not as a, it's not like a, a, uh, it's, it's, that's one of the coolest things about 
the scene is that everybody's there for the intention of playing and you know compared to looks like a nashville which there's amazing musicians in nashville but the scene there doesn't uh, doesn't um I, I'm not really into the idea of living there based on the fact it's such an industry town. Right. Um, you know, it's, uh, it just doesn't seem as a, as much of a creative art scene as New York and LA has gotten a lot better in terms of that. I mean, just, it's a lot of guys from New York moved to LA and they're, and they're starting to have a lot of cool, more art shows there. And, uh, this place called gold diggers I've been hearing about it's supposed to be where everybody's doing all those kind of shows gold diggers huh well, that's good to know is i'm going to be in la next month just scoping the scene out there as well so it's good to know that that's going down i'll check it out yeah and you know it's so every every city has its minuses and pluses to live there you know it's just there is no perfect place for anybody right all right, guys, this episode is brought to you by Best Buds CBD store if you're like me maybe thc isn't always the right high for you or maybe the legal status of THC has you a bit hesitant to indulge. So at Best Buds CBD store, they have an array of CBD and Delta 8 THC products. These guys truly care about their service, so everything is meticulously sourced and prepared to deliver a top-notch product and experience. If you head to their website, you'll find all kinds of educational information regarding Delta THC and CBD. Uh, not to mention if you use promo code BOTBPOD, that's B-O-T-B-POD, you'll save 10% on your order. This is not a one-time deal. If you use promo code BOTBPOD, every time you place an order with Best Buds, it will give you 10% off. That's in perpetuity forever. So head over to bestbudscbdstore.com and start saving on all of your CBD and Delta A products. Enjoy, guys. So I'm curious, you said that you did some work with Akon and Fergie and a bunch of, I'm sure, a bunch of other people within that realm. How, did you, how do you get connected into that world coming from... Well, I guess first off, did you come from like the improv and jazz and jam world or or did you come from, you know, more of a uh, of the R&B and, you know, or even like rock stuff coming up? Well, I, mean, I, I started playing, you know, I'm third generation musician of my family, but I started playing music because I heard Green Onions in that movie The Sandlot when I was 10. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the first CD I was really ever exposed to in my own was like this soul compilation. So really my roots are that and then you know rock and then extreme metal were my first roots and then jazz you know the term you know you know i i really hate that word it's 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 i don't think it's a very positive word word jazz um and i realized that studying jazz that i really enjoy the uh the the idea of what improv was more than the vocabulary or language of that. Right. You know, right. I was, once I discovered, I think the first, you know, besides all the, the Coltrane and weather report, all that kind of stuff I got exposed to in high school. I think it was when I heard Sean Lane and Jeff Seif and Jonas Helborg do that temporal analogs of paradise record that was like, okay, they just improvise this whole thing. And it sounds like, it doesn't sound like that language. And, um, and by that same time, you know, it was, is when, you know, Bruce forced himself on me in a weird way. Living, <laughs> uh, and I heard late bronze age and I heard ARU and I was like, okay, there is, 
other ways to improvise than what you know quote unquote jazz is right right yeah i can definitely understand that there's i mean being exposed to a lot of the jam band stuff especially like some of the earlier stuff where there was this improv element that until i found out about that i was really under the impression that improv lived in jazz and then as you discover you know the, the like the dead and you know and then like other bands kind of within that realm and then you know i discovered bands like modesky martin and wood and I, I started discovering schofield and all this stuff and i was like well this is a real you know if you like some of that that kind of you know some of that harmony that's a little bit you know very tension based if you like some of that but also want something that's relatively obtainable um this is a world that really kind of bridges the improv and the jam stuff together i feel like the jazz and the jam stuff together and it, it like it just opened my mind up to this whole new idea of jamming over like you know kind of jazzy funk stuff you know sure i mean i you know it's it's as i went i went the opposite in terms of a lot of people get into you know because essentially like the dead and you know brothers and these bands you know, their main source of it influence besides the american songbook was coltrane and, and albert eiler and, and all that amazing kind of freer music all the miles davis stuff that was kind of evolving in the 60s right and uh so it's you know that's the the interesting part about all of it is 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 uh you know i started listening to more of the far out stuff before I listened to like blue train or something. I was more, I was already listening to interstellar space and really hardcore free stuff. Then I got big into Zorn back then and that whole insane world of what he does of just a million albums of always different genres based stuff. Um, But yeah. And so where was kind of, you know, what was kind of the trajectory of your career from when you started playing, when you were playing like more of your earlier influence stuff and then you started getting involved with kind of, you know, where you're at now? What would that look like? Well, I mean, I I started playing in my dad's band was about 13, 14. And that was like a cover band that had no drummer. So it's two guitars he played keys and guitar and a female vocalist and and that you know i was so by the time i was 18 i was already playing for a few years out in public so uh hold on one second my dog's got something else no problem this is awesome the dogs are having candid appearances in the, <laughs> the podcast that's charlie back there oh look at charlie a beautiful dog yeah, he's he's a he's the best. He's a doofus. Yeah, we used to do a podcast at my house. My people would often come up and just hang out next to me during the interviews. It was always fun. He's a good boy. Um, but yeah, so like, you know, by the time I was like seventeen, eighteen, you know, my my parents were like, you know, you gotta get a gig or you gotta go to school. That's the deal. And uh, I tried to go to community college. I didn't last long there. And um, I really, I, obviously, I wanted to go to New York, like everybody does when they're younger, I guess. And, uh, it just wasn't the cars for me back then. It was just too expensive. And 
I couldn't afford to go to school there. I don't want to go to the new school. So I was, the only thing I knew about Atlanta at the time was Bruce. And, um, you know, how I discovered Bruce Hampton was through going to a flea market where I used to buy vinyl. And the guy randomly gave me the late Bronze Days record. And then the same week at this bar I played that, I discovered the first ARU album randomly. So I was like, Atlanta wasn't really ever in my trajectory on a, a conscious, but subconsciously it was, it was there. And I got called to go on a road with this band and I just moved to Atlanta and, you know, the rest is kind of history with that. But my main intention was like the, the, the to have to get up with Bruce one day. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's pretty amazing how it all worked out that way. Cause you ended up doing a lot of work with him. Yeah. Yeah. I was, you know, I was with the old man for about almost four years. And, you know, I mean, I, you know, talked to him on a daily basis. And yeah. So I moved to Atlanta and, and I, after I quit the band I was out with, I really didn't know what to do, but, uh, you know, I was working at Starbucks and picking up gigs and uh, still traveling with a band, like a kind of a, a frat band called Holly Kind. It was real big in Alabama when I was growing up. So that was kind of paying my bills. But I was leaving to go to Alabama still uh, like every Wednesday or Thursday. And I was like, man, should I still be in Atlanta? But I was like, I got to get it with Bruce somehow. And then I just started this jam session on, on Tuesdays it's placed the five spot back then because nobody wanted the gig and it was basically like the at the time in Atlanta in my opinion like the cultural um, musical epicenter of what was happening that was like the coolest stuff it was a little five points it was this nice venue and the owner uh, Kirk Hollingsworth would because uh, he was a musician would take chances and book really cool stuff during the week there. So, you know, it was, he would, he didn't care if he lost his ass. He just wanted the coolest stuff there. Right. Right. And that's how, I mean, everybody met was through that jam back then. And then, you know, eventually had to move it around a few times. The five spot closed and went to Smith's for a brief period of time. And they didn't like it because it was way too far out. And then I was in this place, Elliott Street for years. Then I was in 529 and that's when I was over. But it was a nice long, <laughs> nice long residency for sure. Yeah, man. I mean, how uh, how were you guys able to kind of keep it? I guess because it was improv every every night, right? So it was like, or every time you did it. So you're able to keep it fresh. But like, you know, for 15 years that's a long time to be doing something like that and you guys were able to do you ever have like nights where where you just like weren't feeling it and it just like kind of train wrecked or were you kind of always playing with people that made it easy for you guys i mean you know the evolution of that night you know it, 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 it not 20s it was like we were playing tunes still you know uh but out of sheer frustration, I was about 22, 23. I was like, I, I need a break from Atlanta because at the time it was like some of the gigs I was doing back then was to be older guys. They were just telling me basically what I wasn't doing right all the time. Right. And I, like, I, I thought they were full of shit because I was like, you know, how is this guy telling me this is wrong when he just does dinner restaurant gigs on Thursdays and I'm on the gig? Hey, thanks. Thank you so much. Yeah, text. Okay. 
Um, but, uh, you know, like I, I told my buddy Carter Arrington, who's this amazing guitar player that was from Austin. And I met him randomly in Atlanta and he, we became fast, best buddies. And he was like, man, let's just go to New York for a week. You know, cause I just, you know, discovered, uh, at the time Wayne Krantz and that completely blew my lid because it, I was describing to my roommate at the time about wanting to start a, a guitar trio that was based around more like rhythmic and stuff and not doing the standard thing. He goes, well, there's a guy in New York that's been doing that forever. And then I got into him. So me and Carter's intention was to go to the Mecca of the universe, which is the 55 bar and get some inspiration to take back with us down South and, that's when I saw one of the gigs I saw Wayne play was at the Iridium. And it was uh, him and Tim Lafay. It was called Dan Wise and David Benny. And they did, they did two sets of improvised music. And I remember going, man, that's what I need to be doing down there. And, um, and you know, in my typical kind of musical terrorist form, I didn't tell the club that I was going to do this. And so I basically had an ensemble that was 12 people which were five saxes, three guitars, two drummers, two basses, and we just played complete noise. Oh, my God. Ran everybody out of there, and the manager ended up getting so mad that she uh, quit doing that that night. But the thing is, that was the first time I ever connected with Kirk, the owner, because he loved it. And Kirk was like, we need to keep doing it like this, and that's what kind of led into the improv. But uh, back to your question about the the train wrecks. I mean, if you're really honestly improvising, then in, in 15 years, I, and this is a, uh, even off shooting the reality that probably 20% of it was good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. in terms of, you know, cause they're really improvising. And, and over the years I would have these different levels of, I would try stuff out. Like I was like, what if, you know, for a while it was a, it was a huge house band. It was like six or seven people trying to do this. And, and eventually when guys would come through, I'd hire them for a while and they would take off and I'd get new guys. And it always kind of worked out where I was at musically. And in the, the last five or six years of it's when, you know, I was really at that time more into uh, getting into like dub and reggae and electronic music and, so it was me and Darren Stanley who played with Bruce and Spencer Pope. And we uh, thought of improvising more of a pro producer's role and less about soloing. So it was like atmospheres. It wasn't hardly any solos at all. I love that idea, man, because that's like my favorite, like kind of improv to either watch or participate in because it's it's so obvious to just like have people take turns soloing, but like, how can we actually compose on the spot and come up with like a cohesive idea and take it somewhere, you know? Yeah. And that's, and that's, you know, so that's where it kind of evolved. And, you know, on top of the music, I would do these, you know, I had these antics, very, you know, performance art, which was a borderline of comedy or just annoying to some people, but uh, which is very in, in tune to the Amy Coffin, Bruce Hampton realm for many years. Okay. So that was another additional way of improvising was uh, doing just, I mean, I can't even tell you all the stuff we used to do. Yeah. <laughs> you have like a couple of examples of stuff that you can like say on, 
on air. Yeah, I mean the I think the number one thing of all that that I can always just kind of puts in a nutshell is um one particular year the club Elliott Street, which is located very close to um the the big arena Phillips Arena. And that night Dead Co were playing. Now there were some cross wires because you know I'm very good friends with O'Teal that the owners thought they could call it like an official after party. Which you can't do. Advertise something like that, right? And so I we had a, we had a packed house, which isn't normal, in this basement bar, and I proceeded to do 100 balls of beer on the wall in its entirety, while stacking chairs on top of my drummer who was pinned to the ground. Oh my god! Until the chairs eventually fell over into the crowd, and by then there wasn't much of a crowd because we pretty much ran everybody out. Yeah. <laughs> You know, um, so that you know that was kind of the, the you know the intention of the performance art was really just to prove, you know, Colonel Bruce's the you know all, I mean I could talk about him for ten hours straight stories or whatever, but um, his quote about taking what you do seriously and not yourself is basically I'm gonna get it tattooed soon. It's like my motto for everything because you know in reality it's like nobody wants to be around people that take themselves so seriously what they do you know it's to me it's a very big sign of insecurity where you have to kind of live through being something else right especially as musicians and um there's nothing worse than meeting somebody that thinks their shit doesn't stink for playing music which in a certain sense is just touching something with your hands literally is that yeah absolutely it's it's just like the it's just create it's just making something vibrate really and and then to be able to control that to an extent but yeah it's wild or singing and or, and and then if you think about it, it's like we're not emts we're not police officers we're not school teachers uh you know i mean it's just the reality of of the rational human mind of what we do is very unimportant, but then the important part is why art's most important is inspires goodwill. Exactly. So it's a dichotomy of reality because we are essentially useless and then the most important people on the planet somehow. <laughs> right. Well, I, mean, I, think, I think a lot of people saw that during the pandemic and the lockdowns and stuff too, when uh, especially people that are active in the music community, whether you're a musician or you're like a supporter, um, I think people were missing uh, that interaction um, because, you know, at the end of the day, for those police officers, those EMTs, those firefighters, to you know, the school teachers, you know, when they go out to alleviate the stress of their life and their work, a lot of the times we're the soundtrack to that alleviation, which perpetuates, you know, healthy, a healthy state of mind and all that stuff. So the idea... You know, what we do is important, but it, it's also kind of comical when you think about what the act of what we're doing actually is, you know. Exactly. And, that, and, that, and that's, that's Bruce's whole point, I think, in a nutshell, is that. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, especially when I started working more with all these, you know, like John McLaughlin, and, you know, it, 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 when people didn't know me. I mean, if someone knew me, they knew what, what they're getting themselves into, but. On paper, it's like, oh, I'm gonna go see this, you know, world class bass player steady gig. I can't wait to go see it. And then it would be me 
you know, smoking cigarettes inside and throwing stuff. <laughs> And because uh, it's all tied into that, you know, because it's improvising. Right, right. Now I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really curious about this because I love this concept of tying in performance art and the improv and just kind of the absurdity of all of it. Um, but then also that dynamic or that dichotomy that you're kind of portraying in your in your performance. There's also that in your day to day, right? Because then you're actually getting hired to do studio work for pop artists and stuff like that where it's very meticulous and there is no fucking off or improv it's this is what has to be done so how do you kind of you know balance those two worlds especially well, if, you, if you make it part of your brand you know well that's the thing is like i don't you know side man work is work you know it's it's you know i've known people for years that didn't know i did you know i played on you know, number one hip hop records and stuff, because that's not my thing. That is a means to provide food on the table. Right. So that's how I separate it is that those gigs provide me to do shit with like Wednesday Night Titans, um, where I can wear spandex and play this future music with like my favorite drummer ever. So it's like, you know, but you know, unless you have financial stability, through somebody or family or something like that, it's like you have to main, you know. So, so when people ask me a question about their careers and if they're frustrated, because I teach a lot now, and uh, most of my students are, um, in fact, all of them at this point are either professionals or amateur professionals. And um, you know, some guys have day gigs and they and that, but they play what they want. I'm like, that's there's no difference in that, right? I mean, I think it's uh, also sort of a disservice sometimes when you get caught up in the loop of uh, doing shit you don't ever want to do and it, it comes out in your friends, family, and your own music. So um, I just have two separate brains because I do love, like the session world is, I, I passionately love that aspect as much as I like, you know, wearing no shirt and smashing beer bottles on my head or something. You know, I don't, right. you know what I mean? I mean, it's the same same level of what I like doing it because it's, it's a different side of my brain. Right. I've just you have to, it's just switching. It's like a switch, you know. But you also you also have to keep it real. And I've even for session work, I take chances and, and I've been I've got arguments with producers and you know there's there's also a level of being you know kind of keeping a dangerous profile even in certain worlds and certain worlds just you know. I don't want to be a part of every orbit. That's an interesting way to describe. It. I really like that a lot. I think the more experience that you get doing those different things, you kind of learn what works for you, what doesn't. And it's kind of, it's, it's cool because I can really appreciate the idea of, you know, the performance side of it and, and the improv and like the passion project, but then also being as into the structure and the, the execution of seemingly per, of what seems like seems like perfection in the recording and pop world and to understand and using your judgment as to when and where it's appropriate and to have the same passion for like that structure i think is very cool and and also just indicative of of your passion for music as a whole right because a lot of people get so caught up i think in the jam and the improv thing where it becomes almost like the structure is a joke or it's not even it's just kind of absurd but to like have the the idea of what you're talking about i think is just it's admirable and it's very cool 
to hear that that's how you think about it, you know? Yeah. I mean, again, it goes back to, you know, the, one of the, you know, it's, it's amazing that even in certain circles, if you, when you organize human beings together, uh, a hierarchy is going to be set. And uh, one of the craziest things about that is, is that, you know, a lot of people can't just, even though, even though they have been, their whole lives felt that like they've been made fun of or whatever as a musician, and they get, they, they get drawn to, let's say, like a really out free jazz noise world. And, you know, the amount of pretentious people in that scene is just like a pop world. Yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, I'm like, what? Okay, so you're eating oatmeal and, and, and playing a frying pan as your set. Yeah. But, you're, but I'm still getting vibed here. Yeah. yeah, for sure, bro. It's, you know what I mean? And, 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 and I'm not going to name names in, in New York, but there's, I'm just always trying to find balanced people. Because that's that's really what I like is obviously a lot of people I listen to are not necessarily I agree on certain things about music, but majority of them I think are and just you know I can appreciate the guy with the frying pan and oatmeal as much as I can Stravinsky in a way you know because it's it kind of ties back to the authenticism of what they're doing and the intention you know that's all I really look for. Exactly. The intention, I think, is the, the authenticity and intention is, I think, the most important thing is if you're doing it for the right reasons and you're doing it, I mean, ultimately, that's what it is. If you're doing it for the right reasons, that's the intention and that's the authenticity, you know, and that definitely shines in the playing. And oftentimes when, when bands or musicians, I think, fall short is when you're abandoning the intention and the authenticity for fitting a mold that is not what you're trying to be or not really who you are, you know? And I've had this happen in my own personal, you know, endeavors as an artist, because, you know, you get, you do like, especially when you're younger, you, you know, you get kind of distracted by the glory of this or that. And you're like, well, I want to do this. And I think I want to do that. And you're just not, you're abandoned. You don't really know who you are yet. You know, do you ever feel, did you ever go through that process? Do you think? Oh, I mean, of, of course. I mean, it's the it's a part of the developmental phase phase of trying to find the sound that's in your head, right? You know, because you know the problem is too is that you know it's the same thing as advice. You know, vice is one it, people who give advice are full of shit. because yeah. <laughs> there's no such thing. It's like when people ask me for advice, I'm like, I don't give advice because it's it's like I don't. This is what I do. And I don't, and I don't want to have any kind of skew some, skew something I don't know anything about, you know. And in reality, the only person you're ever going to know 100 percent about is yourself. It doesn't matter who that is, and that's what you have. To, that's my mindset for musicians. It's just is, uh, and you have to be honest with yourself that the imposter syndrome and going through the phases is part of it, and it, it comes and goes. And you know, of course, when I was, you know, I made some really bad decisions when I was in my, you know. Uh, post Bruce years about thinking about like, well, I want to be kind of like this, you know, just for gun hire guy forever. And, uh, you know, and, you know, there's a few bands I quit playing in and that were original projects because I was wanting to do this and whatever. And, and looking back, it's like, I'm such the opposite of the spectrum where it's like, I'm more into attracting myself with like projects and like bands and um 
whatever it may be. And there's certain, you know, I mean, when you make a conscious decision to be honest and for what you really want to do, there's a lot of sacrifices. And I've definitely turned down gigs that some people would be extremely excited about based on the fact that I just have, I'd rather not do that because of just my mental capacity of handling not being happy. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to me, it's it's work. You know, if I don't have any, if I don't have any writing, and I don't have, you know, if I'm just a, a side man, um, then you're hiring me for a service to play bass, and that's the extent I will go. You know, right, right. Well, it's. I feel like also there's got to be like a certain level of it where even if there, there's not writing or something, there's got to be like an, an attachment to the music itself, right? So if, Number one Exactly. Because if you're like, you're not getting any of the credit on the writing side or whatever, and it's just work, you have to at least enjoy the work that's that, that's being had. Exactly. And there's and for me, there's a far in between, a few between gigs that'll do that. And there's a few that I would definitely, you know, jump on. You know, if I had a way. And then there's also a few gigs that are the opposite, which I really love the music, which is totally out of my fucking, you wouldn't believe that I'd probably say that, you know? Like, what Like what do you think, like, some stuff that might surprise people? I mean, you know, like, like Wow Love, it would be an insanely sick, you know, touring gig. Because it's just, it's that, that large band concept is, is great. Yeah, yeah, he's really not talked about enough as a songwriter, man. He's amazing. Great, amazing songs, great look, great organization. You know, that's kind of a, you know, I guess a kind of all of spectrum. Um, you know, I think in, you know, like I, when I, uh, like when I did the, that run last year with Government Mule, you know, that's another band that I would, totally jump on to, to play with you know because the music's amazing the crew's amazing it's a legacy that i support and it's in my wheelhouse and i can still be myself right totally i think i think you know even like uh dwight yokum would be fun oh hell yeah that'd be a sick gig hell yeah uh, yeba oh really fuck like yeah he's got a diverse so there's art there, you know that would be stuff that would be musically fulfilling and spiritually fulfilling also being for hire, you know, but, uh, there's, you know, 90% of stuff I could name. I would you know, be a really hard decision. Why would do it? Yeah, no, I definitely get that, man. Again, that just comes with more, like the more things, the more scenarios you put yourself in and the more you've said yes to over the years, at some point you start learning how to say no, even if the, the opportunity seems like it's, you know, a good one. It's like, yeah, but at the end of the day, a paycheck or a status thing is not going to make me happy as much as, you know, as, as you know, uh, I'm sure w musicians struggle for a very long time before there's any kind of financial payoff, if there ever is. And, oh. and it's easy to get distracted by, you know, getting that pop gig and being like, man, this is good money, but am I going to be happy really at the end of the day? You know, how long is it going to last? Yeah, exact that too. Right. That could be like one tour that you're on and then you're done. If, if even right. a whole one or you're, you know, it's, it's, 
Yeah, you know, and I, my, my, you know, it's 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 such a, you know, cr- you know calling a business is hilarious, but it's it's uh, the music business is one of the craziest. Situ- it's not any like any other business. Yeah, <laughs> there's literally, and this is more Bruce Hampton stuff. Is there is absolutely no guarantee of anything ever. You're basically just at the fucking blackjack table or the roulette table your whole life if you do it. And it's it's not for everybody, and that's why you have to really want it to do it. You know, and that's what the pandemic showed a lot of people, including myself, because it was like I you know, I ate shit and did my time of just you know, the Chitlin circuit and van tours. And then I, you know, and until I was about thirty one years old is when I, you know, went on my first international tour and and then started working with Krantz and I opened up so many doors and I was and it was like, wow, now I've got a you know, I've got these great projects before the Titans and my own, you know, Titans is my own stuff with Zach and Infor. And I was doing Jimmy and 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 all these great gigs and I was on the road a bunch making a good living and then pandemic happens and when things came back up it's you know, none of that was really around. Right, know? right. And uh, so you have to adapt. It's like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be like, oh my god, I, I, you know, things have changed. It's like you have to adapt and figure out other means of uh, supporting yourself, and it's, uh, it's not easy for anybody. Totally, man. I'm, I'm curious what your first, like, you know, that first international tour was who would you go out with and how did you catch that break I went with out with a band called Lark Lark and Poe Oh, oh right, yeah. no shit Yep years ago um and at the time she had the rhythm section for a while and she ended up they I say she like they're one person but um but uh they ended up wanting a new band and they had auditions in Atlanta and again like I mean, I don't, I, I'm not saying I, I mean, I definitely put time into getting the gig, but I, you know, I wasn't like hell bent on saying if I lose this opportunity, I'm going to be crushed. So, right. Um, I just kind of went in there just looking as a job and I got the gig with Darren and we did a month out with them and that, you know, but the thing is when, when you do one tour international, it's weird. Like literally, that means you're going back forever. All it takes is one way of getting in. And my buddy Emil Wurstler told me that. Who you know, Emil, I grew up with, is one of the best uh, guitar players ever. And he was really heavily involved in the extreme metal scene and played with these just toured the world. And he was like in his early twenties. You know, so I remember him telling me that. And literally, like, I get back from Europe, I get called for a Japanese run, and then. You know, so it's it's just weird, and you know how that all kind of worked itself out. But um, yeah, I just it just it just takes you know having a reputation that doesn't have nu- nuclear blasts in it. You know, it's okay if it's like, well, he's kind of you know he can be a little intense or whatever, maybe. Be, but if it long as it's not like, well, he gets blackout drunk and pisses himself on stage or he 
really going to show up or he's an asshole. You know, as long as you can maintain a, a, a uh, you know, a legit reputation of being a, a professional kind guy, I think you're in good shape. Yeah, totally. And what, I'm curious because it, this is a story that's kind of that you that's pretty common within the industry is that like you catch a break, right? And then you go on tour, international tour, and then obviously the preparation helps and all that, but people then find themselves existing in this ecosystem of these international touring bands, like, like what happened with you. And then all of a sudden you're bouncing around and before you know it, a few years goes by and you're like, man, I really haven't been home or had to play like a restaurant gig in however long. What do you think that is? Is it just showing up and doing the job and getting the exposure? Or is there so is there something else that kind of like when you break into that ecosystem and you just don't really, unless you really fuck up, there's really no going back, right? Or if the world shuts down, obviously. Yeah. I mean, there's also, yeah, it's like a level of, you know, and I tell people this all the time, it's like as just the nature of being called for hiring a sideman, you have to say yes to everything. And pay should not be a factor. It should not. And that's the hardest part for a lot of people to kind of grasp is, you know, because, you know, I didn't grow up. I grew up in a small town in, in Alabama with your typical lower middle class family. I mean, there are musicians and, you know, I mean, the way I, the way I, some growing up is that we didn't have a whole lot of money, but for Christmas, I would get a Sega Genesis. <laughs> right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Um, or whatever it was back then. But it wasn't like we didn't have, you know, we lived in a, uh, the, the typical lower class, middle class neighborhood. So, you know, taking chances in that, in, in that situation where you don't have a big net is hor horrifically daunting sometimes because you're like, well, if I turn down this corporate gig on Friday and go play this gig, I'm going to lose $200, which leads me to only have $100 instead of three or whatever. But the truth of the matter is every gig I've ever gotten, pretty much every gig that I've wanted to do, like from whoever, from Krantz to Bruce, all came from playing gigs that you wouldn't think. You know, like Bruce first saw me play at a Bojanic gig in Atlanta. It was an Indian restaurant on Wednesday. I used to do for 50 bucks. Wow. You know, and then the, the first time Jimmy heard me was at my jam session, which at the time paid nothing. <laughs> you know, um, so I think there has to again be a balance. You know, it's if you know that certain people are hanging places that you want to work with, and the gate pays twenty five bucks in the long term, it's more worth it than um, you know. Because when I start when I first started playing with Krantz. I was, you know, I was flying up to New York on my own dime to play with them. Now, mind you, like usually they get paid three to five hundred dollars, and at the time flights weren't what they are now. So I would essentially break even, right? Thirty-five bar gigs. Now, just playing that gig in New York alone meant that it's like, oh shit, you're doing the Krantz gig. Now you're doing it on a steady basis. We gotta come check this guy out, right? <laughs> so again. No, uh, in terms of long-term financial gain from taking chances on stuff like that, it's surpassed 
any amount of money I make playing some standard corporate gig every year. Of course. There's a lot of musicians that you talk to out there that are like, you know, doing the wedding circuit, the corporate circuit, and and they're doing okay, but like they they hate it's almost like they hate playing music at this point. Like you talk to them and they're like it's literally only dollar signs in their head. There's nothing else going on when it comes to their instrument. I feel like a lot of that is because of always chasing the dollar. You know, it's like, well, you know, I'll do this for a little while and then eventually a creative project will come along. But unless you really make the effort, a creative project doesn't really come along. That's literally the antithesis of how a creative project works. It's like you have to chase it. You have to like put the effort in to create it, right? No, absolutely. I mean, I remember years ago, people laughing and then I would, I would say, I'm going to play with Krantz one day. So you got to move to New York. I mean, it's again, there's, there's a lot of influences and a lot of self willpower of, of affirmation and, and um, sticking true to your guns, not listening to other people, <laughs> you know, I mean, right. It's a big thing is being very careful where your information comes from. Who's telling you totally, totally. Because it's like, you know, if somebody up most respected told me to do something, I'd listen. But somebody's being negative again, who who is who's frustrated their own career. What what advice can they give anybody? You know, misery loves company, man. That's why it's important to like and I know it's such a cliche thing to say, but it's so it's cliche because it's real. People that are not happy want to bring other people with them on that journey because it's, it's to validate their disgruntled state of mind and you're never going to really meet somebody more disgruntled than a musician that's been doing it for 20 plus years that just hasn't caught their break and chances are it's because of their their mindset you know sure or it's like you know i mean again there's all sorts of circumstances and that's why you have to kind of roll the punches about life um because that determines more than your career. Right. You can't get bitter about things that are happening in your life that, you know, cause you to, to uh, have setbacks in your career because it only gets more, it only gets more crazy when you get more into it. Right. That's a, such a good point. Yeah. It doesn't get easier. That's what a lot of people understand. <laughs> yeah. It's it way harder, you know, because it was, you know, because at the time when I was working all these, these, you know, very insane progressive um, instrumental groups in New York that were mostly electric fusion based, you know, it'd be like, okay, I'm off toward Fork. Now I'm going on tour with Dino Castlin, and these songs are extremely hard too. So how do you balance that out? Well, it means I don't go out on the road a lot of times. Back then, I'd have to sit in my hotel room after a gig and learn, start learning material and pick your battles. Um, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just what it is and it doesn't get easier. That's the misconception. If if, if you think like, oh man, I've, I'm doing this. Well, what happens when the next thing calls while you're doing that? You know, do, t- you know, it's like, and the pressure of, of playing in certain communities of uh, musician world is it, you know, I mean, it was, it was, I, I'm a, I don't, I really have got the point of not giving a shit about that now. When I first started doing it, it was like, you look out in the crowd and it's like, man, how many of these guys are judging me right now? Oh Probably yeah. One of them. But now I could just give two shits about that at all. It's like, you're just going to take what I give you. And if you don't like it, you can fuck off. Yeah. If you like it, you can fuck off. Everybody yeah. can fuck off. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, well, that's that's also like a thing where you know it's important to, you know, you've done the work as as an artist and a musician, right? You've practiced, you 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 have like all this experience now. You've done all different kinds of work, like on some level. I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like there is a level of validation that you reach that has come from other people after years of doing it, where now you can be like, yeah, well, I know that I'm, I know, I know that I'm capable. I know that what I'm I'm doing up here is valid. So if you don't like it, I really don't care because I've been doing this for however long now and other people have proven that they enjoy it. So I'm not fucking crazy. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I was just, I was, I, I had that mentality even in high school. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't know why I did, but I think the biggest adjustment, like I said, was, you know, feeling pressure for working with people that don't feel that way. Right. Sorry, <laughs> people, because I get it. Like, people have a natural tendency to want to uh, micromanage in general. And just the nature of my instrument already it opens up many doors of argument from disagreeing what should happen because everybody has their own kind of mindset of what or who their favorite guy playing bass is. And that leaks into what they hear bass. There's, so, you know, I just think, you know, about you're your saying about the validation thing is that is a great point because when you start doing more and more stuff, then you are essentially like that, that weight is lifted a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. Not, not wondering what that is exactly i'm also curious because as a bass player right there's a lot of guys out there you're kind of like the bridge of the 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 rhythm and the melody right like you're, you're the glue that's holding that all together and how much you know somebody early on that i respected gave me this great advice like it's important to listen to a song and just you know obviously you take everything in but then Go back and listen to it and just pick out one instrument and just focus on that one thing on what it's doing. I'm curious as a bass player, how much are you paying attention when you're listening or playing uh, to other instruments and their role within the music? And how much influence are you drawing from that to, you know, as a factor in whatever it is that you're playing or even just listening to? I mean, listening and playing are two different things to me, but. When I play music, I'm, I don't listen to myself. Right. Because, I mean, in my opinion, it's like the instrument of bass is the equivalent of saying um, you're the offense or def- defensive line of in, in the NFL. You know, it's, it's your bait. To me, it's like I'm trying to protect Tom Brady here. Gotcha. Okay. That's an interesting perspective. I like that. I mean, of course, you know, I, I, I relate a lot of things to sports. I grew up uh, playing some sports. And I mean, bass is, it's, you have to be kind of a psychic in a way because you're kind of having to control, you know, okay, the drummer's rushing, so I need to lay back. I'm rushing compared to the drummer, and he's laying back because they were good. So it's these constant bounces. You have to kind of subconsciously kind of get on the same page with because you don't really want to think that much as a bass player, in my opinion, because it's such a in the moment situation, you know, and that, you know, I mean, I don't I don't remember at this point from, you know, kind of practicing listening while playing. I don't really remember a lot of stuff I play on a gig. You know, so kind of uh, 
fascinating what's happening around me. Right. You know, um, occasionally I remember, and it's like, oh, that was really a shitty idea. Truly, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> really are. I don't remember a lot of the positive stuff, unfortunately. I mean, what musician does, really, you know? Yeah, I, I, I would love to have their brain for just an hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like last night, it's like, you know, when I get put in situations where it's, all right, packed house, you're about to play with people that never played with, you're going to improvise and make music. Um, you have to just kind of think about, like, well, at least the first 10 minutes are going to be just some ass sniffing. Yeah, for sure. So let's get that over with, and then we're going to get in some shit. But it's it's definitely, that's, that's the most challenging thing to me is just, all right, never played together, just met an hour ago. Okay, let's go play music and make it all up. It's, that's, you know, it, it's kind of to me where it kind of separates the adults from the kids is be able to handle that. Totally. Did you ever, do you, you ever have like uh, amateurs come in to like your jam sessions and like people that maybe won't been playing a couple of years, if that, and like, you know, how did you ever, obviously you guys are at such a level. How did you mitigate that uh, situation? Well, I would put them up there with guys that, you know, I had a, I had a, uh, a take where, okay, this kid's coming up. I'm going to put him up with the best guys I can. And just to, just to kind of in one way see how they both, how both parties react, you know, because if you're at a jam session and let's say you tour with a huge act and you're this professional and you're, you have accolades and you, and you decide to go out and jam and you get mad about playing with somebody who thinks not at your level, then you miss the point of it completely because it's not, you're not on a gig. It's, it's, you're literally sharing um, experiences. You know? right. and, uh, so people do that. I would just, you know, how extreme it was, I would just basically not tell them to come back and I didn't care, care who it was. So if they were if they were if they were like vibing people out, you tell them not to come back, or you would tell Absolutely. the people that couldn't hang. Okay, got you, got you. That's the thing is like that's the that's the, the the time for people who you know quote unquote can't hang to kind of get their confidence and learn some stuff from guys in a proper way. Um, so I mean, the idea of like you know uh, vibing and beating somebody in submission does not work, right? I think there's a lot of stories about the past that were myths because they don't give you the full story because, you know, yeah, there's a level, you know, I've definitely worked with some, you know, some of the first older guys I worked with were, um, you know, brutal in a sense, but if I did something wrong, but they'd always explain to me afterwards why. Right. Right. You know, but it's also, I'm on their gig, but a jam session what is the point of this? Yeah. I guess that's true, man. I really this means you're an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> I really uh I really appreciate that perspective and it's not one that I've really considered because you do when you're first starting out, you do have to have a place to like work your shit out. You know, it's like you can't just be expected to walk into a situation and know what to do if you haven't had an ex- any, any real experience. And where else are you supposed to get that experience other than a jam session, you know? Yeah, and, and it's, I mean, especially in the quote-unquote jazz sessions, you know, which are notorious 
for these this 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 bad behavior is is uh or the is the or those for whatever reason in particular. Um and I think any I think any genre based session is gonna have that happen already. Right. Yeah, because there's this there's kind of like this commitment to the authenticity of the genre type thing. Which I mean it's just hilarious. You're a jam session, you know. Like what is the point? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely understand that. I think what I can see with in some scenarios is people wanting to uphold a standard of an experience for the audience. Because if you got like managers or club owners or promoters down your ass about people showing up or buying tickets or just hanging out regardless because the music is can be kind of a clusterfuck. But then it's like, well, then don't have a jam night because that's kind of the whole point is that we're, we're figuring shit out here, you know? Yeah, it's like... I mean that's that's another disconnect of of the business is the owners of the clubs. And I, I I remember years of my session where we'd have you know a bad week or something, and I'd be like, well, how much you make at the bar? I was like, sure to make more than that if I wasn't here on a Tuesday. Yeah, right. Right. I mean. It's 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 just common sense. Okay, you made two thousand dollars at the bar on a Tuesday. How much would you make it? If you just there was nothing happening here. Less than half of that, probably. Right, right. Especially if you're bringing in like jammers and stuff like that, people that wouldn't have been been there otherwise, and all that, you know. Yeah, so it just ties into like you know again like, all right, I'm gonna start my blues jam, and somebody shows up and they might. They're playing way too much over everybody, and how I would approach that would I would just directly talk to them. <laughs> you know, there's plenty of plenty of times running that session where you know, I mean, it would people would just not know what to do, and and it's your job as the host or the leader to, to express to them in a a way that hopefully they'll listen to you. You know, that's not saying I didn't send people. I mean, there's been plenty of people over the years that I was just like, you can't come back here. Really, they it's like yeah, you know, and it was it wasn't necessarily because of their claim, because of their attitude and their their uh, disregard of of uh, listening when people suggested things that were, you know, I mean, if you're annoying five people every time you come out every week, then it's not them, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not, and as you could probably tell by now, I'm not. I am not some guy that's going to be extremely hostile towards somebody that's trying to learn. Um, so no, it seems quite the opposite. Actually, that's something that I've really admired about this conversation because it's kind of you know opened up my eyes a little bit in that regard. Not that like I'm ever hostile to people, but there's definitely sometimes I've run jam sessions where you are getting pressure from promoters and whoever, and you're like, well. I've got to maintain a status here. So we want this to be to, to come off as close uh, to professional as possible. There, it's a jam. So obviously there's going to be some moments, but you know, we don't want like amateur hour here. We want like, t we want consistently good musicians to show up. So then you do kind of put off this thing, but I think that I like what you're saying because it really encourages the community aspect of it. Like if you want people to show up, and you want people to get encouraged and excited about your scene, you need to get give them a place to go judgment-free to work their shit out. And hopefully, if you're a good leader, 
um, then you can inspire people to listen and to get better rather than vibe them out and be like, don't come back here type shit. Cause that doesn't really help anybody. No. And it's also, I mean, there is, you know, this is of course, cause it goes back to the whole bullshit status thing where, you know, I remember when the five spot was, was just beginning and some of these older guys that were, they used to call it the amateur spot, you know, and then you fast forward a few years because, you know, people talk and every community is like, if people talk shit, then you're going to hear about it. And, and you know, the irony is so many people saying that one in particular person, you know, you fast forward a few years ago. Now they're just, you know, playing my record and, and, and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, I thought I was the amateur, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. So, like, you gotta be careful of your of your perception about young players, and I have to catch myself doing that too. Is that people change and get better, you know? So, if your first impression of a guy that's twenty two that, that is not where you think he should be, it's you can't really just hold on to that because you know eight years from they're gonna be you're they're gonna be you're eating his lunch. Yeah, totally. That's, Definitely experience that for sure. So it's it's good to, you know, not to hold on to like these these first impressions of guys when they're younger, or anybody in general. Because man, you never know. People get better. All you know, you just never you never know. Totally, man. Totally. Um, we got to wrap up here in a minute, but I want we have a segment that we do at the end called Unpopular Opinions, um, and we just kind of go around real quick and do just, that for now. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> you seem like somebody's got a lot of opinions. <laughs> so I'm excited to hear what you guys say. We each go around and just say one opinion, and briefly discuss it, and see what we think. Um, Chris has been pretty silent this episode so why don't we give you the first round here chris you got something why thank you there's somebody else here hey man it's chris yeah, right the zoom doesn't doesn't go on me i'm on the podcast but i just sit back here pushing buttons that's sick yeah man it's the best gig ever i don't have to say shit <laughs> <laughs> but you do okay <laughs> okay all right unpopular opinion um that i think will resonate here uh, music school is doing more harm than good these days as someone who just got out of it and seeing a bunch of my friends that are still in it after being on the gigging scene for a little bit. It is just it, you're almost better off just kind of going through YouTube Academy or, you know, linking up with friends. But the academia side of it was it, I, I see it just kind of imprinting a certain kind of mindset on players and. It definitely encouraged me to go to a certain direction that I had to kind of, you know, get some real world experience in and just kind of get other perspectives in in terms of like a, you know, a career and what I wanted to be doing and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. Music school. It's uh, it's a dangerous place. Are you are you, are you reading my mind right now? <laughs> I, I literally have been having this. I had the same conversation earlier and I'll, I'll voice my I will. So I won't I will agree with you a thousand percent on that Heck yeah. that you are a thousand percent correct and i think that we we're, we're finally coming to an age where uh major the majority of musical institutions at this point are is, they're are a business and you having a hundred thousand dollars 
cars and that getting out of school to be a musician. Okay. Let just let that sink in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a lot of, that's a lot of, uh, you know, dinner jazz gigs to pay that off, AKA for 90 years, you played one every night, you know? So, yeah. So I hundred percent agree with you there. And I do think mutual education is, is it needs to go back to what it was at one time, which is a mentorship. Um, where, and I've been, you know, that's the main reason why I teach is to counteract what I think is, uh, bullshit. And it's not very popular to tell people and thousands of people that have, you know, invested a lot of money in in it. But I think it's, I think it's, it's more valid to find somebody that you are, have accessibility to, or even nowadays because of the internet, you you can help any fucking musician in the world say, I want to. I want to learn from you. Yeah. And it's going to cost you probably a hundred, two hundred dollars an hour <laughs> instead of, you know, a hundred thousand dollars. Anyway, yeah. I agree with you there. Yeah, man. Like I, and so I went and auditioned for this jazz school and mm-hmm. the best thing that happened was that I didn't get in and there was, they just started the tech program. So I studied sound engineering production, all this shit, but they would classically train you to a lesser extent than like the jazz or classical kids. So I ended up teaching, like getting lessons with this cat, James Hogan, that was just an unreal player and just had a similar mentality of like, it, it wasn't like, Hey, you have to shed Donna Lee or shed autumn leaves. It's like, bring in what you want to bring in. I'll show you cats that probably inspired him. I'll show like, it just showed me so many different branches of the tree. And it was like, and, and we talked about how that wasn't like what other students right next to me we're getting it was it was really baffling and so like i talked to this to a lot of my music buddies and everyone who kind of comes out the other side that's like really working and stuck with it they all say the same thing it's uh, it's something else you know i I've, I've i teach uh at new school every now and then up in new york and uh you know i mean i tell them do the same thing <laughs> they, they must love you over there <laughs> uh, i don't yeah, they don't but, but, but they have to accept a request from a student that's the beautiful thing about it is if they put a request in they have to validate that they can't probably legally talk them out of it so wow it's kind of cool thank god for that system right yeah, I, I, I agree uh, definitely that there's a lot of musicians that get caught up in that and they're having to skip out on gigs or they're having to like miss opportunities because they have a workload from them on like in school. Not to mention there's a lot of the business side that's overlooked, I think, and or just like the preparation of what it means to be on a gig. It's like they can come in, run, you know, scales and they got all the chops in the world. They have no real understanding of application yet, which I think only comes from the experience of being on a gig and working with other people. There is a mentorship aspect of it and the 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 pressure of knowing that there's a grade at the end of it that says whether or not you pass or fail that makes you spend those eight hours a day in the practice room. But I think that if you can find that outside of music school uh, without paying all that money, like you're saying, the private lessons and stuff can do can offer the same thing. But even then, there's still a level of like, I don't know. I think overall, if there's if there's another option, it definitely makes more sense. I'll put it this way. So this is what happened to me today. Uh, 
had a new student, never met, his first time coming in right before the podcast. Why well, I was late. It's his fault. <laughs> <laughs> Name names. Um, uh, he, you know, there, I, I basically, there's something happening in my radar that I can't talk about that, uh, uh, that's coming up. So I have to cancel a bunch of work next few months. So guy comes in, great player, great dude. And what do I do? I'm gonna recommend you for this gig. That's how, you know what I mean? It's like, I think that the only good thing about school is you meet other people that can connect the dots. Exactly. But you can do that the same way if you go out every night. And I think if you guys can remember being 21, you're going out every night anyway. Right, right. So it's like, you know, especially a city like New York, I mean, it's just the amount of stuff happening is unbelievable. And there's a crew for everybody, and uh, yeah, so I, I wholeheartedly agree with that opinion. Do My that. opinion is this okay? We are entering the age now that younger musicians think smooth jazz is cool because it's been marketed a certain way, yeah. And I think we all three know who I'm referring to probably yeah. right, without saying his name because I don't want to say his name because it might be like that movie, uh, the candy man might show up somehow. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I am deeply disturbed that uh, a lot of the younger musicians now are basically listening to smooth music when it's been it's being advertised as not such and uh that's very disturbing to me like you you shouldn't be could you imagine when we were younger and you're like well who's your favorite man who are you listening to you're like yeah i'm really big on like this kenny g record yeah <laughs> you know, yeah yeah totally big on the Rippingtons record which again is not taking away from them as musicians but they have decided to go down a route of criticism based on more you know because it's you know it's cheese dick shit you know so, yeah, cheese dick shit yeah <laughs> and now we've entered an age where it's it's infiltrated where that's the hip stuff right you know it's it's not as I mean yeah, I it so it greatly disturbs me some of the things that I see on my Instagram feed of what is uh, essentially edgy now, which is the complete opposite. There's there's no teeth. That's it, it, yeah, it's exactly what it is. It, to me, it seems like a like a uh, a watered down version of of it. It seems like a failed attempt at something, right? And it's like, well, this is obtainable. This you know, this is easy. And it sounds a certain way, so let's do this rather than just like really putting the work and and go and going for it and taking a risk, you know? Yeah, or just not being. But I mean, it's again like it's it's uh, the one particular artist I'm talking about. His music definitely reflects his personality. So I think he is truly being honest, but it doesn't mean I have to fucking like it or uh <laughs> or. You know, so, um, but it just so happens that's the, uh, the hot ticket now, one of them. Um, yeah, I definitely feel that, man, for sure. 
for sure. I, and I would say his name, but I can't say it. I'm gonna just leave it at that. I can't. I can't say his name. No, that's probably a smart call. Yeah, the problem yeah. is I could. I you know I feel like it should be obvious, but I've only, I've got like three or four guesses. I won't. I won't guess. I won't put you in that position. But it's. I think it's equally alarming that. I don't know exactly Welcome who it is. <laughs> I don't know exactly who it is by just by this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think anybody gonna anybody listening to this is gonna know exactly who I'm talking to if they know me for more than ten minutes. So, yeah, that's a good unpopular opinion. I would tend to agree with you for sure, hundred percent. All right, my unpopular opinion this week. I've been sitting on this one for a minute. But I got to say, rappers who claim to be the greatest are rarely the greatest. In fact, they're never the greatest. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And this is a trend that's been happening, I think, since the beginning of hip hop. However, there's a difference between being in like a rap battle um, and proclaiming something versus literally marketing yourself as such. And I think the first time I really saw I experienced this uh, was, was when I was in high school and Lil Wayne came out with this persona and like the greatest rapper alive song came out and all this. And it was like, okay, but you're not the greatest rapper alive. Right. Because we have, I mean, Lil Wayne for, for all of his influence in the pop world and, and his ushering in of what I would consider today to be called mumble rap. I think that Lil Wayne was the purveyor of that entire genre I think when you have rappers like, you know, most deaf and Talib Kweli and people within that sphere that exist and are still putting music out, um, you can't call yourself the greatest rapper alive, if, especially if you're operating in the, in, the, in the pop world just as a skill set. You know what I mean? I've had, you know, it's funny. I've, I've, I've had this talk about other, you know, other genres as well. And I think it's... Uh, I think the point of that is is that it doesn't even matter. Right. So that's the really kind of crazy thing is like you take a guy that claims on the grace of anything, it's it kind of goes the sports route. Right? Right. Right. Like there's one of a guy that I know very well, work with him, he's an incredible musician. Explain to me why that's a good mindset to have because it doesn't matter. Ah, uh, I see. So it's kind of like a reverse thing where it's like, okay, you can say it, but it doesn't actually mean anything. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, honestly, it's like who I, you know, it's like if you think about, I mean, think about, I bet an unpopular opinion would be the guys we think are the greatest, the majority of people. Like, who, they probably go, who is that? Yeah. <laughs> that's very true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's oh, true. he's the greatest. I've never even, who's that? Yeah. I like this guy. It's like, what? You know? Totally. Totally. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, 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 uh, who would you think who's, who's your, who do you think is the greatest rapper of all time is? I don't, I, th- I think that you're correct in, in saying that it's kind of like, like it doesn't really matter. And I don't know that there is a greatest of all time, but I think that there are people that are thinking in ways and that are communicating those ideas in ways that are far more advanced, um, oh, than other people. And, you know, there, and then there's an entire culture that buys into the rhetoric, right? And the way that influences culture is dangerous, I, I think. When there's I, people that have a real message, they're trying to say a real thing, and they really put the time and work into their craft. 
and that's not being paid attention to in the same way you know what i mean i mean absolutely i agree with you there it's i guess you're right it is a uh a kind of a dangerous road to take when it leaks into everything you know yeah because in circling kind of to round out the whole conversation i think circling back to the beginning when we talk about music and artists and what we do not being super like it's kind of like nonsense at the end of the day but that di- that duality of us being us being like w- what we do being nonsense versus it also being the most important thing <laughs> is because like like music and art in general is a representation of where culture is at just in general um and i think that when we start when, when we're when we're kind of putting on a pedestal um music especially you know hip-hop hits me in a weird kind of way because i have such an affinity for the for the genre but where i see it existing now on the pop level it's an economy of words and, it, and it's like and to now have the, some of the most popular rappers on the planet that are popular for their lack of of putting together a cohesive sentence <laughs> you know what i mean it seems counterintuitive and i think ultimately you know, is a bad representation of where we could be as a culture, you know? Yeah, I love, I mean, one of my favorite guys is Big Crit. Oh, yeah. Probably my favorite right now. Amazing. Amazing. I love Big Crit. He's definitely conscious and his, he produces everything and it's, I, I, I love him. But I, I, I feel you there. I mean, it's a, you know, it's, especially in, like in that genre, I mean, it's, it's, you know, if you look at the history of, of rappers, they, they, they list, you know, guys like Ric Flair is their biggest, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a reason for that, you know? Yeah, totally, man. Totally. Anyways, um, I got to sh- head off to a gig and I don't want to keep you any longer either. Kevin, it's been an absolute pleasure hanging out and talking to you, man. It's been really great getting to pick your brain. I love the way you think about a lot of things. It's very cool. Man, well, thanks for keeping me on it because all this stuff just keeps popping up. So I appreciate you guys just being, not being like, all right, well, fuck you. This is not gonna happen. Oh, so. Of course, man. Of course, it's uh, it's great. Yeah, man. I'm glad we were, we were able to make this happen. And uh, good good luck with everything in New York. And I'm sure we'll see each other down the line. Yeah, I hope so. Hopefully, I'll be I'll hopefully be down there sooner than later. You know, it's a good time to be down there. Yeah, man. So. Definitely. All right, man. Well, we'll talk soon. Have a good one. Awesome, man. See y'all soon. Peace. Thank you.